You're listening to Doctrine, a series where we examine the fundamental elements of the Christian faith, which are necessary for every Christian to know and understand. It's being taught to you by Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County. If you have your Bibles ready, let's begin. Tonight, we're going to be uh, doing our last doctrine study, and we're going to be looking at the doctrine the doctrine of the kingdom of heaven. I rode my bike here at about uh, 620, rode my bike, <laughs> so my throat's a little parched. I'm a little out of breath. I'm not going to lie to you. Kind of out of shape as well, so if I have to take a few sips, you have to forgive me. Um, you know, as we've looked at the creation, as we looked at as we've looked at how God created this world, and He saw that it was good, uh, the the world in its original created state. Uh, we then looked at the fall of man and the curse that was brought upon the earth, and we all can realize and probably concur that something right now is seriously wrong. Am I right? Something is wrong with this world. I mean, even the best of us have major problems, or the best of you have major problems. You know, the best kingdom or society has major flaws and major problems. We look at the original created garden and how God made it and how God made relationships and uh, his relationship with man and man being his image bearer, reflecting his attributes and his character. And now we look at man and we are just depraved. We are in desperate need of a savior. Uh, even just uh, this world, uh, you know, the, the physical world, the grass, the waters, the skies, the, the trees, everything, uh, it's just corrupt and it needs help. Uh, as Romans 8 just says that the, the, you know, the world, its corruption is crying out, desperately longing for the day that Jesus comes back and puts things um, back in order. But as we realize that there is, you know, need for change, there's need to get back to the original created state, uh, we have hope, but that hope is not in us. I mean, as you look at uh, history and man trying to save itself, mankind's trying to save itself and fighting wars and spending money and sweating sweat and shedding tears and shedding blood, as much as we try to save ourselves, you know, most of the time we just make it worse. And so, you know, we just know, man, our hope is not in our our president. It's not in our, you know, treasury department. It's not in our military. Uh, it's not in any other country's leadership, but man, we know it's in Jesus and we can't wait for Jesus to come back uh, and set things right. Uh, so tonight we're just going to look in depth at, uh, you know, what the kingdom is, what the kingdom of heaven is in depth. And so something we ask ourselves is who is the king? Who is the king of the kingdom? And tonight we're going to go through about three chapters of Revelation, jumping through some verses and reading fast at some points. And we're going to see, if you were to read through the whole book of Revelation, you'd see that the word throne appears in Revelation 45 times, referring to uh, Jesus's throne. 45 times in 22 chapters. The emphasis of Revelation is that Jesus is on the throne and he's reigning and he's going to reign. And as much as we get into Revelation and we start looking at, you know, 
cataclysmic events on a biblical scale, literally, you know, or we start looking at the Antichrist or the Mark of the Beast or, you know, the War of Armageddon or whatever, and those things can be exciting to look at, you know, really, all that stuff totally fails in comparison to just understanding Jesus is on the throne, and that's what Revelation is about, the revelation um, of Jesus as king of kings and ruler over the heavens and the earth. And so a uh, question we want to ask ourselves, we know who's on the throne biblically. Jesus is on the throne. Uh, one day we're going to see that all of that, uh, all of what that means will all, totally be in place uh, by the end of the book of Revelation. And, uh, but we ask ourselves also, when? When will the kingdom of heaven be? And, uh, you know, you begin to get into... Um, eschatology or the study of end times as you ask that question. We did about a nine-week series back in Luke chapter 21, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, where we looked at uh, end time stuff. Awesome, exciting study. You can get it online and it's nine weeks, so it'll fill your iPod up pretty quickly, especially you know how long I go. So, um, but we did look at, you know, some of the vocab words and I'll tell you the vocab words in order of what I feel is a chronological order. Now, as I tell you this, I want you to understand that I'm not dogmatic in this. This is just how I feel biblically these things line out. And uh, you are all sensible people, so I encourage you to get your Bibles, blow the dust off if there's dust on it, and search these things for yourself. You know, I I don't want to get super dogmatic in uh, the study of eschatology, but this is how how I feel things seem to line up. And I think there's some things it's important that they line up that way. Um, you know, as you look at the scriptures, as you looked at the, look at the character of God and his heart for the church. But, you know, I, I understand there's a lot of brilliant guys out there that, you know, uh, that they struggle and wrestle with this as well. Clear back when we were looking at the Olivet Discourse, this study of eschatology, I watched this video that had four different doctorates of theologies, professors and pastors, and they each held a different end time stance. And as they, you know, argued and debated and, you know, in love, got all red faced and sweaty. You know, you might remember me telling this story by the end of, you know, about three hours of debate, they just go, man, I don't have it all figured out, man. I, oh, but man, good job and pressing into the word. Yeah, you too. Let's keep digging into the word that we might, you know, just understand what the Lord has for us. And, uh, you know, Jesus says that the wicked servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming, you know, and he says to watch and to be ready because our master's coming in a day we don't know. So we want to know when that's going to be. We want to try as much as depends on us to know so we can be looking up and be ready and living righteous lives. Uh, so anyway, I personally believe uh, that the next event in God's prophetic calendar uh, is the rapture of the church. I think things are all set up according to, to, to the Bible and history and, and everything that needs to happen. You know, I believe that the rapture is the next thing to take place. And that is basically the catching up of the church, of the true believers. We talked about the church for the last two weeks. Uh, and those believers will be caught up into the air uh, to meet Jesus in the clouds. You read about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, uh, that trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we also will all be changed. And that word rapture in the Greek, uh, it's harpazu. Uh, and in the, in the Latin, it's the word raptus, where we get our word 
rapture. And it just means to be caught up or to be snatched away by force. So I believe that the rapture is the next thing to be taken place. And, and, you know, perhaps the Antichrist is alive today. You know, that, that son of perdition, perhaps he's alive today. Uh, you know, perhaps uh, he'll come right on the scene immediately after the rapture. But Daniel chapter 9 tells us that, that he's the next thing to come. And uh, Revelation, you also see that. And at the beginning of the Antichrist, when he makes a covenant with the nations, I believe Israel and the Muslims there in Jerusalem, there will be a covenant made. Uh, that, that will begin a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation, seven years of cataclysmic event where God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Remember, the church isn't there at this point. Uh, and, and his wrath is poured out in all sorts of different ways that would take a year at least to go through on a slow scale, or maybe even on a fast scale. Uh, but seven years of God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. In the middle of that seven-year period, so three and a half years into the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant that he had made. And he would have rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem at that time. And it says in Daniel chapter 9 and in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, you read that he brings an end to sacrifice and offering in the temple. And he breaks his covenant and he demands that he be worshipped there in the temple. There's going to be another dude kind of following him around, a false prophet that's going to kind of testify that this Antichrist is in place of Christ, that he is the Messiah. And people are going to be freaked out. They're going to run away. And then the great tribulation begins for those last three and a half years uh, where major persecution, ma- major uh, tribulation against the Jews and even against the, ch- uh, the, not the church, but the tribulation saints or people that become Christians in that period. I know this is a lot of information. Maybe the back of your head just exploded a little bit, but all you need, you know, just good rapture of the church, uh, tribulation period, seven years. Uh, we know what happens in the middle of that seven years, but seven years. And then at the end of that seven year period, Jesus is going to come back, I believe, with the church, with the saints. And he's going to come down to the Valley of Armageddon and he's going to actually wipe out all of the armies and the Antichrist as, as they come to war against Israel in the Valley of Armageddon. And, and Revelation 19 says, with the sword of his mouth, uh, all of those enemies will be devoured as Jesus comes conquering and to conquer. And Zechariah tells us, chapter 14, that he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and there will be such an earthquake that the Mount of Olives will split in two and a spring of fresh water will flow to the east and the west and make the Dead Sea a life sea again. And uh, awesome stuff happening in, in Israel's ecosystem as Jesus comes back. And then after Jesus comes back, There will be a 1,000 year period called the millennial reign where Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth. We'll look at that tonight uh, and then following that, uh, the uh, new heaven and the new earth. So that's kind of just a quick overview, very quick overview of some eschatology. And you guys have Bibles, so you look at it yourselves as well. See if you land in the same place as me. Um, but again, you know, not dogmatic. And like one of these men I listened to said, you know, I'm not opposed to changing my position in midair. You know, we all reason these things and, oh, the rapture happened. Oh, okay. I was wrong. <laughs> it's okay. I wasn't holding so tight to it. My pride, Lord, don't let my pride get in the way. You know, Billy Graham always said, pray for a pre-tribulation rapture, but prepare for a post, you know, uh, man, pray that the Lord takes his bride away. And I personally believe 
uh, that he will. So when will the kingdom of heaven be? Um, uh, you know, I think that finally we'll see it at its, in its entirety at the end of the tribulation after Jesus comes back, even after the millennial reign, when the new heavens and the new earth come. I think we'll see it totally in its entirety. Now, if you'll flip over to Luke chapter 17, you might remember this when we were in Luke 17 uh, back in October. But in Luke 17 verse 20, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. When is this kingdom going to come that we've been hearing about by the prophets? And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation or outward appearances, nor will they say, he, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. So we all know the Pharisees and the Jews and even the disciples, you know, were looking for a physical kingdom to happen right then and there that Jesus would kick the Romans out of Dodge, you know, and take, take over Palestine again. And finally the kingdom would be set up and that's how they all wanted it to be seen. And the whole topic of the kingdom caused a lot of confusion, uh, even amongst the disciples, you know, but remember John the Baptist, when he was in prison, sent his disciples to Jesus to say, Hey, are you the one to come or do we look for another? You know, cause I'm in prison. So if you're going to set your kingdom up, let me know. Cause that would be encouraging as I'm in prison. You know, and then, you know, the crowd was confused. They wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff at one point or set him up as king. They were confused. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. Set him up as king or throw him off a cliff. You know, those are major polar opposites. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, you know, Pilate asked in, in a little bit of a worried tone, you know, if Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. You know, the apostles between Good Friday and Easter, you know, uh, they said, are you at this time going to restore the nation of Israel? Um, actually, that was after Easter, before the ascension. You know, so everyone was wondering, when is the kingdom going to happen? Is it going to happen now or is it going to happen later? And Jesus says, you know what? It's not going to come by outward show. It's not only a visible kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom as well. The ESV version says that the kingdom of God there in, in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Uh, you know, it's not these signs that we could just observe solely on the outside. It's not a kingdom across land, but it's a kingdom across men's hearts, as one man put it. So the kingdom of God, not just on land, but also in uh, your heart or within you. You know, Jesus is basically saying to them, the kingdom is here because I'm here. Wherever the king is, there his kingdom is. You know, to have a kingdom, you've got to have two things. Number one, a king. Number two, jurisdiction or a place for that king to have reign or to have sovereignty. And so two questions. Number one, is the kingdom present or future? Is the kingdom present or future? Both. Good job. You remember our Luke chapter 17 study. It's both. The kingdom is present and future. Is the kingdom earthly or is it spiritual? Both. It's both. Okay. Now, the kingdom of God is in the regenerate heart or the born again heart of a forgiven man. So if the forgiven man is right here on earth, he's been born again. He has a regenerate heart. Guess what? You're partaking of the kingdom. There's a bit of the kingdom happening right where you're at. You know, um, 
one man, a professor named Dr. Daniel Lockwood, he's a professor in Portland at the uh, Multnomah Theological Seminary, and he said this, I prefer relating the kingdom to both the authority and the presence of the king. The kingdom is presently spiritual because Jesus has authority, but it's not physically present. The kingdom is future and earthly when Jesus returns. He will exercise his authority over the earthly realm. So right now we don't fully see Jesus's kingdom set up on earth, but one day we will fully see his kingdom uh, here on earth. One man says, you know, it seems helpful to understand the kingdom as already, but not yet. That's what you call a paradox, (laughs) you know? Already, yeah, yeah, but not yet. As you feel brain seeping out the back of your, down your neck, it's kind of cold, isn't it? You know, it's yes and hold on, (laughs) you know, already, um, but not yet. Already in that it is spiritually present, uh, but not yet in a literal future sense. One of my good buddies, I'm quoting him here, Adam, he just said, there are many Christian circles that go to one extreme, saying the kingdom is all totally right now. And so therefore they believe that, you know, America should totally become a Christian nation and, you know, every other nation as well. And you're going to see that happening like it should happen right now. And if you're a Christian, you should never get sick and you should never be sad. And if you are sick or sad, you've got some major problem, sin issue, or, you know, you're, you're, you know, no, you know, that's, that's wrong. You know, the kingdom's not going to fully be seen here until the king is here. Uh, and so uh, then the other hand would be to say that, uh, you know, the kingdom's not here at all. And the Lord doesn't heal at all. And he doesn't want to rule or have any part in your circumstances. And that would be the other extreme. Say, nope, the kingdom's not here at all. And so if you're taking notes, just remember, uh, it's already, but not yet. Um, you know, Romans tells us the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And uh, you've heard me say before that there was, there's a sociologist named Will Durant. You know, he sums up the difference between God's kingdom and man's kingdom by saying Caesar hoped to reform men by changing institutions and laws. But Jesus Christ wishes to remake institutions and lessen laws by changing men. That's where the kingdom is really found. When men are changed, when men and women are born again, they're regenerate. The Lord has taken their stone cold, sour, bitter heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that is tender to him and hears him and knows him and wants to obey him. That's what it means to be born again, to be regenerate. And wherever there's a heart that's soft and tender to the Lord, uh, it's been replaced, has replaced that stone heart. You're seeing a bit of the kingdom there, uh, for sure. So the kingdom is come in that there's places you see its powers, you know, manifested. Uh, You know, um, Jesus is on the throne in heaven as he ascended from Galilee. He's at the right hand of his father and he is ruling. He is reigning in heaven. We see Christians have power now because of the Holy Spirit over sin and temptation. Uh, The gifts of the spirit can be used to further the kingdom and glorify God. This is all part of the kingdom uh, happening um, now. And so, uh, 
You know, as we look at the Olivet Discourse, we're also given some tips or some hints on when this kingdom is fully going to come. And in Revelation, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, you can flip over there. Remember Jesus told the disciples as they were in Jerusalem, uh, as they were kind of bragging and in awe about the temple stones and the buildings and the, all the pomp in the area. Jesus just said, you know what, I'm telling you right now, the time's going to come when not one stone of this temple will be left upon another. And so they asked three questions that Jesus goes in to answer for two chapters of the book of Matthew. The three questions they ask are, when will the destruction of the temple be? What will be the sign of your coming? Hopefully some of this is refreshing. You remember this from our long study in, in Luke and Matthew. So what will be the sign of your coming? And thirdly, uh, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And so Jesus goes in for two chapters and gives us this discourse that causes us to wake up. It really is a slap in the face. And look at your sin. Look at what your rebellion. Look at your ignoring God. Look, you're not serving. You're not active in the church. He's coming soon. You're a horrible steward of the things that God's given you, both spiritually and in your home with your finances and in your resources and the things that you have. He's coming soon and you're going to give an account to him. So wake up. And so for two chapters, there's a big wake-up call. I think the whole book of Revelation is a good wake-up call for us. But, you know, he says, watch. You don't know the day or the hour that the Lord is coming. And so in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, we're told that all of the signs that Jesus gives, they're all like birth pangs. They're all signs that kind of start out small, just like when a lady first has a little baby inside her, it starts out tiny, tiny, microscopic, starts getting bigger and bigger and moving and hitting and, you know, pinching sciatic nerves and sitting on your bladder. And, you know, pretty soon, you know, the woman's just like, I can't take this anymore. When is it going to happen? And so much pain until finally Labor Day comes. If you haven't talked to Dana about her labor story, you got to go talk to that woman. I will never mess with that lady, ever. She is tough. She eats barbed wire for breakfast. I'm just letting you know that right now. You know, but so she knows what I'm talking about from experience. But, you know, uh, these labor pains just get more and more intense and violent until finally, you know, the baby comes out and uh, it's birthday. Okay, so Jesus gives us some of these signs that watch them. They're going to get bigger. They're going to get bigger. And just real quick, we'll look at them. Look at verses four and five. We see that antichrists are going to come on the scene. It's also interesting as you look at these signs that are getting bigger and bigger, you also can uh, parallel them with Revelation chapter 6 and 7 and the seal judgments and how they're very similar, these signs in Revelation. So anyways, um, you know, you've got these false antichrists coming on the scene and Revelation says one big antichrist, is the, the sum of all antichrists is going to come on the scene. Uh, then in uh, verses 6 and 7 of Matthew 24, the sign is wars and rumors of wars. And you see that in Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. Commotion and instability and confusion among the nation. We all know we've always been at war. You know, war has been, you know, you read about it in the Old Testament. You know, really only 8% of recorded history has been fully at peace. There's always been war, but it's never been like it's been within the last 100 years. It's been neat to read through my notes again and just to see that in the 12th century, excuse me, there were 2,600 conflicts roughly in the 12th century, 2,600. 
in the first 25 years of the 1900s, there were 12,835 conflicts and over 100 million people died in war in the 1900s alone. You know, huge birth pain, huge jump on the Richter scale. So wars and rumors of wars, they're going to get worse. The third sign we read about in verse 7 of Matthew 24 is famine is going to rise. And, uh, you know, read about that. The third seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. You know, there's going to be an estimated 22 uh, billion, or excuse me, million deaths from starvation in 2010. And that's basically, as you look at it, it's basically 43 people dying per minute from starvation. You know, and as you look at what causes starvation, wars cause starvation. Uh, and, and another thing that's big in uh, aiding to the starvation is uh, population explosion. Population ex- explosion. And uh, as you just look at, you know, from the flood to 1850, that's how long it took to get 1 billion people on the earth might remember me giving you this statistic. The flood, Noah, to 1850, just before the Civil War, a billion people finally were on the earth. And then from 1850 to 1930, two billion people. You know? And then from 1930 to 1960, 30 years, we made it to three billion people. Then in another, uh, about 15 years, we got another billion. We were at 4 billion by 1975. And then in 2009, uh, when I did this study last uh, and, and researched it, there were 6,700,000,000 people on the earth. That's huge population explosion that, that adds to all of the famine. So famine is a sign. Pestilence is another sign you read about in Matthew. It's that result of famine and disease and, uh, you know, there's a lack of doctors. There's just not enough doctors in the world. One doctor for, for every uh, 572 people in America. But in East Asia, there's one doctor for every 2,000 people. Or in Africa, one doctor for every 17,000 people. You know, so how good do we have it, you know, in, in America with our doctors? You know, and then that pestilence of AIDS just, you know, growing uh, just tremendously. Another sign in, in Matthew chapter 24 are earthquakes in various and diverse places. Man, you read the book of Revelation, it's earthquake central. You know, just that labor pain finally uh, and, uh, you know, from the uh, ninth century had one major earthquake uh, the 11th century had two major earthquakes, 13th had three, 16th had two, 17th had two, 19th had nine major earthquakes, the 20th century had 40 major earthquakes, and then in, from 1950 on, it doubles every 10 years. And uh, last time I taught this, we were going through the earthquake in Haiti, and then that earthquake down in Colombia that caused the tsunami. They were waiting for the tsunami in Hawaii. You remember that? I mean, we're talking major earthquakes. It's all birth pangs getting more and more. So all that to say, uh, you know, the kingdom is coming soon. The birth pangs are getting more and more frequent. And uh, finally, you know, widespread death on earth we read about in Revelation. Now, uh, we're told in Matthew that all of these signs are the beginnings of Jacob's sorrows, which is another word for that tribulation period. 
or Daniel's 70 weeks that we read about in Daniel chapter 9. It's all birth pangs. It's all the beginning of sorrows. So I let you all know that to just say, when is the kingdom going to happen? Soon. Uh, You know, it's already, but it's not yet. But soon, I believe soon, we're going to see that kingdom set up just in, in the fullness of all that it is to be. And all of its peace and all of Jesus' glory and all the splendor and all of the, you know, economic stability and all of the lack of war. You know, it's coming soon and that is a very exciting thing. So when will it be? Soon. Already, but not yet. Um, what, what will the kingdom of heaven be like? Kind of a fun study to do. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9. Flip over there with me. What will the kingdom of heaven be like? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, It's written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So think of your best day and imagine it without the curse, without pride, without selfishness, without a little fight. Imagine it, you know, in in a perfect world, uh, you know, and you're not even touching the surface. You know, your eye hasn't seen, your ear, you haven't even thought about how incredible the kingdom of heaven is going to be. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 through 4, Paul tells us a story. I believe he's hinting that the story is about him. He says, I know a man who, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, and how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words that it's not even lawful for a man to utter. You know, and uh, so he says, I know a guy who died and we know Paul, they thought he was dead when they stoned him and they took him out of the, out of the city. Uh, So it could have been him, but he just says, when he went to heaven, man, he saw things he couldn't even tell us about it or he'd be in sin. You know, English language or the Hebrew language or, you know, Greek, it just doesn't do justice. Uh, That's how incredible the kingdom of heaven is. Uh, You know, Revelation shows us, so let's flip over to Revelation Revelation gives us some incredible insight into what the kingdom of heaven is like. And, you know, multiple times throughout Revelation, we see God on his throne. We see Jesus on his throne. We see uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Godhead in heaven. Uh, It's just incredible chapters. But multiple times you read of just these worship ceremonies just breaking out in heaven in just glory and awe. And uh, it's just an incredible thing to read. But in chapter four, it says, after these things, I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Okay. So here's just a glimpse of the, the throne room of heaven. This is what I personally believe we will see when we're raptured. I think John in verses 1 and 2 had a a type of rapture himself. And he who sat there, so there's a throne in heaven, one sat on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And so as you study heaven, you see just the artistic nature of God and the beauty. And, you know, he gave us the ability to understand art and beauty and, you know, just splendor. And we see, man, there is just, the throne room is just a portrait that we can't even begin to express. Rainbows and diamonds and, you know, 
uh, green. There's a lot of green and emerald look there, an appearance like an emerald in verse 3. And so then around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. I personally believe that's a, just a representation of the church. You know, 12 from the tribe of uh, Israel, 12 from Israel, 12 elders representing the church, probably the disciples. You know, I just think it's a, a, elders are representatives of the church personally. You can look at it on your own. I won't arm wrestle you about it, but I just think it's a representation of the church and they're worshiping uh, the Lord. And uh, they're, notice what they're wearing. You know, they're clothed in white robes, which is a promise you see in chapters two and three that the Lord gives to the church. Uh, those that overcome will be given white robes. They'll be given crowns, uh, you read about in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, and from the throne, verse 5, proceeds lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So you know, nowadays we've got Blu-ray and HDTV and, you know, surround sound. And man, you just picture the booms and the ah, you know, and we just can't even begin to imagine just the surround sound in heaven or the HD color brilliant movements in the heaven as the angels and the elders and these Four living creatures are worshiping and the, you know, picture the loudest waterfall you've ever been to or the biggest thunder and lightning storm doesn't even compare or do justice to the throne of God. Just oh, so incredible. Uh, verse six, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So this beautiful sea of glass, these crazy creatures uh, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders would fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They'd cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were uh, created. And then in chapter 5, you see Jesus. He looks like a lamb that was slain. And then from verses 8 on, you, you read that he'd taken the scroll. Jesus took the scroll. The, the uh, four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain. And then you read a song that's, that's only could be sang by the church, sung by the church. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You've made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. These are things that were only promised uh, to the church. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a big number, 10,000 times 10,000. It's like billion. You know, that's how many angels are in the throne room and the worship. And can you even imagine, how many of you have ever been in the presence of a billion people singing the same song? Hasn't been happening, has it? You know, Lord, really add to our church in Prineville so we can have that sensation. You know, that was a selfish prayer. I'm sorry. You know, um, 
But thousands and thousands and ten thousand times, you know, that's a lot of worship just resounding. Our, our greatest imagination can't even begin uh, to fathom what's going on, you know. In verse 12, they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Man, anything good is given, uh, you know, is, is, it's, it's tossed to the Lord in praise. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, you know. Even, even the, the 24 elders, you know, they have these crowns, which were rewards that were given to them. And they say, I'm not worthy to have this crown. Any good thing I did on earth was because of you, Lord. And I'm going to throw this and this and this and everything good that I ever did that I was rewarded for. I'm giving it to you all the glory and blessing and honor and power and praise. Who does it go to? It goes to Jesus. Man, we got to remember that anytime during our day that we start getting puffed up or pats on the back, it all goes to Jesus. And every creature which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, all that are in them I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. So you got some sort of weird Lion King Disney movie thing happen here where all of the creatures, the sea creatures, you know, or whatever, they're doing their dolphin dance and their frogs and, you know, the, you got the, uh, the lobster singing a song, you know, whatever. They're all worshiping all of creation gives glory to the Lord, Romans chapter 1 tells us. It testifies of his splendor. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. So what will heaven be like? Well, that's just a taste of eternity. That's a taste of, you know, a period that we'll have in uh, heaven with the Lord in this kind of honeymoon period after the rapture, I believe. But I think it's also, a, you know, just a, a foreshadowing of what the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like as we're going to be worshiping Jesus uh, for all of eternity. Uh, then if you jump over to chapter, um, chapter 19, we read the beginning of this uh, future kingdom being set up. And here we are, we're going to start out in chapter 19, verse 1, and we're going to read of one of these worship services happening in heaven. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he's judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. It's this false religious economic system that was set up during the tribulation, and she was judged, she's personified. And he's avenged her honor, the blood of his servants shed by her. She martyred Christians. She martyred the saints, uh, Antichrist being the head of that religious, ecumenical, governmental hodgepodge. Uh, In verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent or all-powerful reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her he's granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here we see at the end of the tribulation period, seven years have been completed. The church, the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that the church is the bride. Uh, we see her in heaven and the, the great feast 
uh, takes place in heaven. And as you study the Jewish wedding, uh, it all lines up with the order of ceremony as there's a feast here. Um, and so, uh, you know, here, here the bride is, the church is. She's all dressed in white. And, and these are, the, um, verse 9, he said, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Man, how true, how true that is. Blessed are those who are saved by the blood of Jesus and are called the bride of Christ. And you get to be part of the wedding ceremony. Um, you know, these are the true sayings of God, how true that is. And I fell at his feet and I worshiped him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm, you know, I'm an angel. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of, Je- testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw, so here the kingdom is just, it's coming, it's beginning. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So, you know, I I love uh, listening to Mark Driscoll. He's kind of a new pastor I've been getting into. And I just love that he's like, we have such a messed up view of Jesus as like this piddly little guy, you know, this little Galilean guy that can't stick up for himself and, you know, just, you know, some kind of a just peasant little guy, which some of that's true. You know, his physical strength while he was on earth wasn't all that he was about. But when we really know who the Jesus of the Bible is, we see him as Revelation chapter 19. We see him riding a white horse. And man, I'm a guy that grew up on horses. I love me some horses. You know, I love Western movies and, you know, knight in shining armor movies. I love when a guy gets on this awesome white steed and can jump over stuff and use, I mean, he uses the horse. I don't know if you know the gladiator scene, you know, when he's in the amp, you know, he's in the theater and he's on this white horse and he's jumping over chariots and shooting bows and arrows. And oh man, nothing compared to Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. He's not on a Shetland pony, you know, or one of those Irish horses, you know. Uh, He's on a nice steed, a heavenly horse, okay? And uh, he's sitting on it. He's a warrior. You know, he judges. He makes war. He's a man's man, you know. Uh, His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He has a clothed with robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. You know, Mark Driscoll was saying, um, he was interviewed by a TV network, and they asked him, why don't men follow after Jesus? And he goes, because men have a wrong view of Jesus. They have a view of a Jesus that you can beat up. And no one wants to worship a God that you can beat up, you know? But if you have the image in your mind of the revelation Jesus, you know, you're like, that guy? worthy of worship, or even the Jesus of the Gospels, you know, serving and laying his life down for us, worthy of worship. But here we see him, he's a guy that's got a totally pure white robe on, except for blood stains all around the bottom, dipped in blood. That is a guy you don't want to mess with. He's going to take you down in a fight, and Jesus is getting ready to go out and uh, take people down in a fight. He's clothed in a white robe, dipped with blood, or in a robe, named... uh, in blood, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He's the incarnation of the Word. Uh, And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I personally believe that that, that's us, the church, coming with him uh, in in victory. Uh, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress, of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. I mean, 
this is just talking about his, his conquering might, his ability to judge and make war and win war. Um, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus is covered in tattoos, you know, just declaring who he is, who his identity is. Uh, and I saw an angel uh, standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. You know, God shows no partiality. Whoever you are, if you're in rebellion against God, if you're dead in your sins, and you're shrugging your soul, shoulder against the Holy Spirit who's speaking to you right now to repent of your sins and come to Jesus, uh, then you are going to have the same fate of this person, no matter what, whether you're rich or poor or black or white or Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. There's no partiality. So repent today and, and come to Jesus. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of the fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is the moment we call the second coming where Jesus comes to the earth and he judges uh, the, the nations that are coming against Israel, the nations that have rejected uh, Jesus, and he kills them with his word. His, his words are like a sword, you know, and it's, it's very picturesque there, like it's coming out of his mouth. And so he, he's in victory, and everyone there in the Valley of Armageddon um, dies, is slaughtered, and the, the birds are full of the flesh. We read that. Um, Satan was caught, uh, the beast was caught, the Antichrist, they were all caught. And so in chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. You're going to read that thousand years many times in this chapter. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and put a seal on him so that he would, should deceive. And so why is he put in this bottomless pit for a thousand years? So that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released uh, for a little while. So Satan is bound for 1,000 years or during uh, the millennial reign. Uh, so verse four, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And uh, I, believe it's, I believe it's the Christians there, the church. I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who'd not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? For a thousand years. So two different people. We've got uh, a group who's had thrones promised to them. Uh, and, and you see, that's the church in chapters two and three. There's a lot. Man, this is like years of study as we go through Revelation. We'll get there someday. But the church and the tribulation saints uh, ruling with Jesus in the millennial reign or this thousand year reign on earth. Uh, verse eight, or I'm sorry, verse um. Verse five, thank you. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose numbers of the sand and the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire with brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here in chapter 20, we read about the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand year reign. Three things that we see, uh, major things. There's going to be changes in the earth's ecosystem during the millennial reign. There's going to be a change in the quality of life for people alive in that time. Uh, this is, we're talking about here on earth. Um, and then lifestyle changes for the people. Let me just give you about 10 quick points about the millennial reign that you read all throughout the Old Testament. Um, uh, number one, for a thousand years, the earth will be restored to its, to its original pre-fall state. You can read about that in uh, Romans 18, verses 19 through 22. You know, just the, the creation longs to be taken back to that pre-fall state. Um, and then also there will be healings from the tribulational curses. Read about that in Ezekiel 47, verses 8 through 12. If we had time Love to read through all of them slowly with you. Um, but for a thousand years, imagine our earth back to the pre-fall state, ecologically and all. Number two, there will be longer periods of sunshine. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26. Number three, there will be no more hostility between animals and man. Not sure what that means for you avid hunters out there, but uh, you know, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, Isaiah 11, verse 6. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling all together, and the little child will lead them. You know, the cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones will lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So for a thousand years, that's, that's the type of peace that will be on the earth. Number four, there will be no more birth defects. Isaiah chapter 35, verses five and six. Number five, man will live longer. A hundred-year-old uh, person will be like a child. Yeah, you read about that in Isaiah 65, verse 20. Number six, People will have day and night access to spend time with Jesus. Can I get a Yahoo? Yahoo, okay, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Number 7, there will be no more war. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. No, no war for two reasons. Number one, there will be no devil. He'll be locked up. Nations won't be deceived. Uh, number two, because Jesus won't allow it. You read about you know, swords and spears being beat into plowshares and being used for farming purposes. Number eight, there will be um, this uh, co-mingling or habitation with Jesus. We'll have the raptured church. We just read about it. And the tribulation saints uh, reigning with Jesus. Number nine, there will be a strange mix of people that will populate the planet during the millennial reign. Rednecks. 
you know? And what do I mean by strange? Well, picture this. There will be a group of people that believed in Jesus and were alive during the tribulation and survived the Valley of Armageddon and all of that, and they'll be alive when Jesus comes back. And so for a thousand years, they will live on this earth. And it'll start out that they love Jesus. And it says that yearly people will be going and, uh, you know, if they're on one end of the planet, they're going to go and they're going to bring offerings to Jesus and worship Jesus. And, uh, and, but, you know, starting out, it's a good Christian family. And then throughout the thousand years, just like what happens in our family, you know, kids don't want to follow the way of their mom. I was raised in a Christian home. I don't really, you know, and they just get lukewarm. They get complacent. Finally, they become rebellious till finally the end of the tribulation period, there will be a whole lot of non-believers, complacent, hard-hearted people. And we'll read, we read about Satan being let loose at the end of that thousand year period. He's going to get a a posse together of, you know, a huge number of people that are going to rebel. They're hard-hearted. They're, you know, won't, won't follow after Jesus. And he's going to lead this rebellion against the, the, the Christians, the Christ followers. And God doesn't even give them a chance. You know, they're like, ah, get them. And God's just like, boom, you know, and just devours all of these people. And, and the lesson in that is that we have a sinful nature. You know, men have a sinful nature. They have a need for a savior. And the, the heart of the matter is the person's heart. They themselves need Jesus. And even in the millennial reign, uh, we'll see that uh, the kingdom isn't totally 100% accomplished uh, until finally that last battle and the, you know, those rebels are taken out and Satan is finally thrown into hell forever and ever and ever and ever. Like I said, whole study, whole long, long, long study. I'm um, just giving you little, little nuggets about it. So, um, you know, God allows uh, Satan to lead this rebellion. Let me read to you from the Moody Handbook of Theology on what it says the um, millennial reign of Christ will be like. When Christ returns the, uh, to the earth, so the second coming, he will establish himself as the king in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. The unconditional covenants demand a literal, physical return of Christ to establish the kingdom. The Abrahamic covenant promised Israel a land, a posterity, and a ruler, and a spiritual blessing. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Palestinian covenant promised Israel a restoration to the land and occupation of the land. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. The Davidic covenant covenant promised a ruler for the throne of David. 2 Samuel 7, 16. We know who that is, right? Jesus. The new covenant promised Israel forgiveness. You know, the means where the whole nation could be blessed. Jeremiah 31, 31. Um, At the second coming, all of these covenants will be fulfilled as Israel is regathered from all the nations. Read about it in Matthew 24, 31. They're converted in Zechariah chapter 12. Israel will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn. As one mourns for his only son, they will be converted and restored to the land under the rulership of her Messiah, Jesus. This is exciting stuff. It all coming together. Goes on to say the conditions during the millennial reign will depict a perfect environment, physically and spiritually. There will be a time of peace, joy, comfort, no poverty or sickness. Um, 
because only the believers will enter the millennium. It will be a time of righteousness, obedience, holiness, truth, fullness of the Holy Spirit. Christ will rule as king with David as regent, Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen, and nobles and governors will also rule. Jerusalem will be the center of the world rule, Zechariah 8, 3, rising physically to reveal its prominence. There will be uh, topographical changes in Israel. Then it goes on to say, at the end of the millennium, that thousand year period, the unsaved dead of all the ages are resurrected and judged at the great white throne judgment. And that's what's next for us. Uh, They will be condemned and cast into the lake of fire, their final abode. The devil, the beast, who's the Antichrist, and the false prophet are also also all cast into the lake of fire. So you kind of starting to get a little bit of that end time setting up of the kingdom and how it all comes together? No. Okay, we'll have it all online. All my notes will be online, and you guys will get it. So um, let's see. Let me just look ahead real quick and see where might be a good pausing point. Why don't we get through um, the great white throne judgment in chapter 20, and we'll come back next week and finish up uh, the kingdom. Uh, Chapter 20, just verses 11 through 15. Uh, And so, you know, remember, this is all under the topic, what will the kingdom look like? So chapter 19, we see the kingdom begin to be set up as Jesus comes back during the second coming. Chapter 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years in the millennial reign when he's At the end of that, loosed to cause a rebellion, people have to make a choice on their own to follow Jesus, and many people choose not to follow Jesus. And then um, at the end of that, we now have in verse 11, uh, the great white throne judgment. And so what will it look like? Here we see what judgment day um, will look like. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away And there was found no place for them. You see the glory of God there. Everything else fades. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And, excuse me, books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into uh, the lake of fire. So before we get into all of the judgment day and the lake of fire thing, I want to give you about uh, six false views of the kingdom or afterlife, okay? This includes hell and heaven. There's six false views. Number one, it's out there. You might have heard about it. It's a little idea called universalism. Universalism states that everybody wins. It doesn't matter what you do or what you do with Jesus. You know, you can be anywhere on that continuum of moral to immoral. You could be a Hitler or you could be a Mother Teresa. It doesn't matter. Everyone will all be saved and get to go to heaven. Okay, that's universalism. A similar view to universalism uh, is annihilationalism. And that is that if you were going to be sent to hell... Um, you just die, and everyone sent to hell is just going to die or cease to exist. There's no eternal punishment, okay? And we know that that is contrary to what we just read uh, in, in the uh, Great White Throne Judgment. So 
You know, both positions uh, negate Scripture. Both positions contradict um, Scripture. Now, uh, annihilationism you know, and universalism, it, it's false, a false view. You know, we know we are going to exist somewhere. We're going to be on the friend side of God or we're going to be on the foe side of God. We're going to be on the friend side of God and spend time with him in paradise for eternity. Uh, or on the other end, we're going to be an enemy of God and we're going to get what we want, which is separation from him. Uh, and, and that's just what scripture teaches. Uh, third false view is reincarnation. Uh, that you die but come back to pay off your debt or to receive rewards for your life. And then a similar view to that is purgatory, that you die and go somewhere else for a little while to pay off your debt to God, and then you get let out of purgatory and you get to go to heaven. That is not what we see in the scriptures at all. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that it is appointed for man to die once, but after this is judgment. Okay, so you're going to die once and then you're going to be judged. No intermediate state. Uh, fifth false view of the afterlife is a soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists hold to this, that you know, Christian dies, you go into the ground and you just sleep and rest until uh, Jesus returns. Uh, in the middle of that time, you're just sleeping. But Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 says that when we die or when we depart, we're with Jesus just immediately. If you're a believer, you're with Jesus immediately. If you're not a Christian, uh, you go to a uh, kind of a uh, the uh, pr- proceeding or the beginning part of hell. It's called Hades. And uh, it's not hell, but it's like hell. You can read about it in Luke chapter 16. And uh, so soul sleep is a false view. And then the popular uh, worldly view of heaven where we're just a bunch of fat babies wearing diapers, sitting on a cotton ball, holding a harp and having a halo on our head. And uh, as one guy put it, you know, uh, if it was a choice between that or hell, I don't know, flip a coin for me. I don't know which is worse, um, being a fat dude with a diaper on. Um, anyways, um, but the truth is scripturally, you know, we have two parts. We have our body and our soul or our spirit. And when we die, our body is going to go into the ground. We're going to bury it. And our spirit is going to be with the Lord. And then the rapture will happen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And when that happens, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will be taken to their spirit. They'll be made perfect, have this glorified body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can read about it. Uh, And then um, people who are Christians here on earth, when the rapture happens, they also uh, will go up and be caught up into the air. So... But all in all, to be absent from the body um, is to be present with the Lord. Uh, So here we read, you know, the case that it's not universalism, it's not annihilation, but it's a judgment once and for all, finally, for those that have rejected God, their their bodies are going to be resurrected as well um, for this great white throne judgment. And then they're going to be sent to hell in their bodies. Um, So man, hell is not going to be a pleasant place, this lake of fire. And, uh, but we see there that, uh, they're, they're cast into the lake of fire. Verse 14, it's the second death. Anyone found not in the book of life cast into the lake of fire. So, uh, what is hell? Uh, who rules over hell? Believe it or not, it's not the devil. He doesn't have his own little ruling ground. You know, uh, God even rules over hell. You know, it's in God's dominion, everything, heaven, earth, under the earth. God is the ruler. He's in charge. You know, and, uh, you know, Jesus speaks about hell more than, you know, any other topic if you read the Gospels. Now, we get the word hell from Hinnon or Gehenna, and it was taken from a place in Jerusalem that was hell. It was the Valley of Hinnon. It was a place outside of Jerusalem where uh, false idol worship was 
happening, people would sacrifice their children and burn them in the fire. They would also have orgies and sexual fornication to worship their false gods. And then Israel took those places and made them a trash heap and began to take all their garbage, all of their sewage, all of their dead bodies, you know, the criminals' bodies, they'd toss them out there. And then Jesus refers to hell, the Valley of Hinnon, as a place where the worm would never stop eating. The worm would always live there. That's what was happening out in the valley. And the fire would never be quenched. The fire was always burning the bodies, burning the trash, uh, you know, burning the sewage. And uh, that's what hell is going to be like. And uh, <clears throat> a couple of quick uh, objectives to hell that people have. I don't like that. Don't talk about hell. You know? Okay, so a couple of objectives to hell. Uh, number one, if God sends people to hell, that makes him cruel. If God sends people to hell, that makes them cruel. So the truth is, God doesn't send people to hell, okay? People send themselves to hell. They choose hell, you know? Uh, And so that hell is self-selected. You know, Jesus welcomes anybody from any culture, any background, no matter what bad things they've done, you know, and and he will forgive. His blood extends uh, that far. And so, uh, you know, anyone who's pro-choice, should love the thought of, you know, hell, you get to choose to go there because that's the case. Uh, people choose themselves uh, to, to be there. So, um, you know, we are determined uh, to rebel against God. And so, you know, by, by his grace, man, he called us out of that mindset and out of that destination of hell. So anyways, people choose that themselves. Number two, uh, hell makes God intolerant. Okay, and people say that like they're much better, but every person is intolerant in one way or another. We are all fundamentalists. You know, if I were to tell you that I don't recycle, I can't wait to get, you know, the lashings for telling you I don't recycle or that I drive a 454 Chevy, you know, that, you know, doesn't get the best gas mileage. You know, people get mad at me for that, throw stuff at me because uh, they're fundamentalists, you know, or, or they're, you know, intolerant. And so, you know, they don't have better plans, you know. Um, you know, if you ask them, what would you like? They would say, I think everybody should go to heaven. So you're saying that rapists and murderers and, and you know, people like that, that, the Hitlers, the Saddam Husseins that never repented of their sin would go to, the, go to heaven and always be like that for all of eternity? Is that be- No, that's not. Okay, never mind. So not everyone go to hell. Okay, well, so the good people go to hell, heaven and the bad people go to hell. And Romans tells us there are no good people. You know, we're all bad people. There's none righteous, no, not one. Um, In fact, uh, God's grace is more tolerant, that he saves the sinners, that, you know, uh, he calls people out of their corruption and will change them and make them new. That's, you know, God is tolerant. Grace is tolerant. Any other way is intolerant. Uh, Number three, and there's only four before we close here, uh, hell makes God unloving. You know, they only know one Bible verse. God is love, you know. So if he sends people to hell, that is unloving. And it's important to note that we need to define love. Uh, you know, God defines love. You know, love doesn't define God. God defines love. Anything that God is, that is love, not vice versa. So by God sending the hurtful, murderous, unrepentant murders uh, to hell. He's showing love to us by protecting us in heaven for all eternity that this fall that has happened on earth would never happen again. You know, any man that won't protect his wife or his kids from harm or from abuse or from, you know, he's not loving. And any God that won't protect his children or his bride from harm or abuse or future, uh, future 
same things that have happened here on earth. He's not loving. So because he's protecting us uh, and bringing an end to sin, an end to rebellion, he is showing love. And fourthly, uh, you know, the thought, again, that everyone should go to heaven. People that are unloving and rebellious and unwilling to change, do we really want them in heaven for all of eternity? And there's a reason that we got kicked out of the garden back in Adam and Eve's day. Because if we were to eat the tree of life as we were in our sinful state, we would live uh, forever here on earth. And the Lord spared us by not letting that happen. He brought an end to that. Um, And so, uh, man, anyone who's rejected Jesus anyways would not want to go to heaven because we read about what heaven is like. If you hated Jesus, would you want to spend worship services and Bible studies and fellowship time? Uh Uh-uh. You're like, get me out of here. People you know, choose hell. And so, uh, you know, just some thoughts, some object- objections uh, to that. And, uh, and of course, the good news of all of that is, is you don't have to go to hell, but you can call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And maybe even tonight, you just sense the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. See what your sin is doing and see where it's leading. And he's calling you tonight to repent. And man, I just plead with you tonight to just surrender and humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm rebellion, I'm wicked, I'm evil in my heart continually, and I don't want to go to this place of Gehenna, you know, where the worm never dies and the fire never is quenched. And so, uh, man, I just encourage you tonight to, you know, just follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and cry out to Jesus that he would wash you in his blood and forgive you of your sins. That is available for you tonight if you would receive that. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.